What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Thursday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a sports ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. That is where you get all of our newest podcasts, articles, news and notes, anything fantasy baseball related. We do share out from that account, E-T-H-O-S FantasyBB. If you're not somebody who uses social media, please do go to SportsEthos.com. You guys will get all that same great content over there, along with all of our, all of our other great stuff. Uh, NBA content is obviously our bread and butter over there. Uh, fantasy basketball in full swing now. I think the NBA season's like 25% done at this point. Uh, so if you guys have not already checked out Sports Ethos, make sure you guys are uh, for all of our great fantasy basketball tools. And beyond, of course, we're heading into fantasy football playoffs. We got a lot of football content as well. Hockey, everything we got uh, really across all four major sports. We have a gambling division, obviously. We do DFS. We do team coverage, specifically a lot of NBA teams. So make sure you guys are going to sportsethos.com and checking us out. But today, we are going to get back into our ADP shows. We've been doing them on and off here and there. Yesterday, we took a break because there was just so much damn Juan Soto talk all over the place. And I really had a feeling, everybody had a feeling that the deal was going to get done. So I kind of preemptively recorded the show yesterday afternoon. I guess it would have been about 6 o'clock when I recorded it. Something along those lines. Uh, I just had the feeling it was going to come, and I didn't want to be behind and do something else and then have it you know, come out today. I guess I could have done it today. A lot of people are talking about it today. But about four hours after I posted the show, we got the seal of approval, which is, of course, the Jeff Passan tweet saying that Juan Soto has been traded to the Yankees. So if you did miss that show yesterday, that is when I did my analysis on the entire trade because, as it turns out, all the early reporting was correct, and all the players we talked about yesterday did, in fact, get moved. So make sure you guys check that one out if you haven't. But today, we're talking about picks 100 through 200 by early ADP, and we're talking about guys that I do not like at their current prices. There are going to be seven names we're going through today. If you guys want to follow along and look at the different ADP that I am using, it is on the NFBC website National Fantasy Baseball Championship website, and you can find it. Uh, NF- if you just look up NFBC ADP, you'll find it, uh, but it's like nfc.shgn.com, I believe is the URL, uh, if you guys want to follow along there. Uh, but we are going to be talking picks 100 through 200. There is a sampling of 82 drafts that have taken place at this point, and I'm just going to talk about the guys that I am not a big fan of, starting with Joe Musgrove. Joe Musgrove is going around pick 108. That is generally where you are seeing him in drafts. Actually, 108 on the dot. Uh, 79 is the minimum pick. 156 is his maximum pick. Now, obviously, Joe Musgrove is one of the more talented pitchers in starting baseball, all things considered. He's been very consistent over the last four years. Now, I don't think he's necessarily what he has shown, which is a 3.18, a 2.93, and a 3.05 ERA, respectively, in each of the last three seasons. I don't know if he's quite on that level. He generally overshoots his supporting metrics. He's, you know, if you look at XFIP, if you look at XERA, if you look at uh, Sierra, he sh- probably should be like a 3.5, 3.6 ERA. And that's kind of what the projections are showing us for next year as well. The early projections have him. As a 3.86 ERA guy, they think the strikeout rate is going to come down ever so slightly from 24.3 to 23.4, and they think the walks will go up about a whole percentage from 5.3 to 6.4%. Now, that all seems pretty good and well. You're outside of the top 100 picks. It's not a terrible price if that is just what we're looking at. It's actually probably 
a pretty decent price. You're talking about the eighth round for a guy that you could comfortably say for some fantasy teams, you know, over the last couple of seasons, not this year because he missed time, but 2021 and 2022, he was a legitimate fantasy ace. So why is the price where it is? It's because of all the shoulder problems, really, uh, specifically the thing that caused him to miss the last month or so of the season. This is what worries me is the reporting on the shoulder. And I've heard mixed reports is, you know, he has said that it felt good at the end of the season on September 29th. He said that it felt good, but just a couple of weeks prior is when he was shut down for the season because, you know, he couldn't go through anymore. He couldn't pitch anymore because of the injury. So I just don't really know exactly what to make of this at this point. And I don't really want to be taking a picture, especially right now, because these ADP shows, like I've mentioned, I don't know how relevant exactly they are going to be come February and March. I'm sure there will be some people that will come back and listen to them because that's kind of the way it works. People will get caught up on podcasts come the new year once they really get into their baseball prep. But I just I don't know that Joe Musgrove is somebody that I want to be investing in wherever at this point in time just because – there are going to be so many injuries that do pop up already. Come, you know, when pitchers and catchers report, there'll be guys that get injured. When spring training starts, there'll be a couple more. And then once the season actually begins, the floodgates really open for injuries. So do I want to be drafting a guy right now where there is already a shoulder problem that I'm not 100% sure of the severity of it? I'm not really sure. He's had a shoulder problem as well going back in 2018. Overall, a fairly healthy career, but... Just at this point in time, when you're talking about early drafts, and that's, like I said, that's what these shows are for. If you're drafting early, this is my advice. If you're drafted in March, we'll talk about different guys that I'm fading in March because there will be different sites that are open, and there will be ADP that we have available from, you know, Fantasy Pros does a good job as well of kind of aggregating it and showing you the average from the NFC and Yahoo at ESPN. And it'll be a little bit different, but I think Joe Musgrove is probably going to be somebody that just based on the track record isn't going to be too far away from where we're seeing right now. Inside of the top 100, maybe sometimes you saw that minimum pick of 79. Sometimes people will take him later, as you saw at 156 at the maximum. Generally speaking, though, I think just based on the name and the track record, you're going to see him get a little bit overdrafted, and it could pan out. We do see guys who we fade coming into the season. There's actually one we're going to talk about later. Uh, sometimes there are guys that have injuries that we kind of fade, and we think, oh, I'm not sure what we're going to see out of them. Uh, we saw it from Zach Wheeler a couple of years ago as well, and they end up just being fine. And... I, I, it could absolutely happen with Joe Musgrove, but the point is when I'm drafting at this point in time, I want to minimize my injury risk as much as possible because you're setting in stone not your whole team but the foundation of your team at this point in time, and you can't change it. You know, you can make free agent waiver wire moves once the season starts. Some leagues you're allowed to make fab moves or waiver pickups the week before the season starts. I think that's fairly common, but you still don't want to be putting yourself in a position where your seventh or eighth round pick is going to be somebody who might be missing more time throughout the season. It could be something that lingers. Let's be drafting healthy players at this point in time, right? It could pan out, but there's just as much of a chance, if not more, that it won't. And I, I told myself that I'm not going to really be that concerned going into the season so much with guys who have been labeled quote-unquote injury-prone in the past and you know Tyler Glass now types who are healthy right now, but I'm not going to really read too much into that label. That changes when there's a guy who is currently just coming off of having to miss the last couple months of the season because he was injured, right? His last start of the year came uh, in July, I think. Yeah, July 28th was his last start of the season. So, yes, he's going to have a good chunk of time between that last start and when he has to get ramped up come February, come January, whenever he'll fully get going. 
but I just don't really want to be investing in somebody where there is that concern at this moment in time. The skills are good. They're very strong. But at the same time, he's not like an ace-level pitcher. And I think at that point in the draft, there are still a couple guys that you could consider, quote-unquote, like ace-level guys. Justin Steele is going right in that same range at pick 101 on average. That's right in the same range. Kyle Bradish at pick 100. Joe Ryan at pick 98. If you go a little bit farther down, you have Verlander, you have Cease, you have... I know I know there are questions there as well, but I think there's a little bit more security in a couple of those names. Uh, you keep going further down, you get Sonny Gray, you got Max Scherzer, you got Chris Bassett. I think there's just a little bit more, you know, Jordan Montgomery. I just think there's a little bit more security and a little bit of a higher floor when you're looking outside of a guy like Musgrove who is currently injured. So... He's going to be a fade for me right now, and I don't really see that changing too much unless his price does get depressed where he is going around the maximum pick. If he ends up going around pick 150 on average, and then you're talking around 10, around 11, you're getting him in a 15-teamer, that to me is a lot different than round seven. You know, that to me is, you know, you're talking three or four other players that you can pad in as a little security blanket, probably one or two other pitchers. And then if you have Musgrove as your fourth starting pitcher, it doesn't burn you nearly as much as let's say you have a build where you're taking a lot of hitters early. Musgrove could be as high as your SP two, or maybe if you're going crazy, he might be your SP one. If you just take like hitters in the first six rounds, which is not even that crazy, really. It's a thing that people do. Musgrove could end up as your SP1, and he might be a guy that is just missing a good amount of time with shoulder injury. So he is going to be a fade for me at this moment in time. Next guy up who I am fading is Hunter Green. And I really like Hunter Green. I think the skills are really excellent, but I also think that he is a type of pitcher who is going to be more hurt by pitching in Great American Ballpark than maybe the average pitcher, which is not great, right? So even when he was in the minor leagues, we did see at times that he did have a bit of a home run problem. You know, if you look at 2021 in AAA, which is the last time you know he was in the minors before he came up, really, uh, in 2022, he had three starts. But we saw 1.52 homer per nine in AAA. And then he gets, you know, he brings that to Cincinnati, where the ballpark is obviously made for fly balls and for home runs. And then in 2022, we saw a 1.72 homer per nine. This year, it was 1.53. Now, he's also somebody who is prone to a high walk rate, and he is going to put more batters on base than probably he should, probably the average guy, right? 9% walk rate last year. It went up to 9.6% this year. The whip went from 1.21 to 1.42. Now, the strikeouts are solid. The strikeouts are still there at 30.5% after being 30.9. Like, he is absolutely a strikeout pitcher. There is no question about it. That's not really what we're worried about for a guy who throws 99 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour. The problem is that he walks too many batters, he has a home run problem, and that ballpark is really not going to do him any favors whatsoever. Now, people pointed to the fact that when he came back this year, because he did miss a good amount of time with injury, he had a couple of tough opponents. Toronto came into town and knocked him around, and then he faced Arizona. But I don't want to hear that, right? Like, I've heard so much excuse, so many excuses one way or the other for Hunter Green. And when it was the end of 2022 and he had the soft schedule where it was, he was facing, you know, I forget who it was exactly now, Chicago and Pittsburgh a couple times. And it was like Milwaukee. And it was just not the greatest, you know, run of opponents. And he ran through them, you know, for five or six starts. He really, you know, took them out. But we can't be reading so much into these small sample sizes either which way with Hunter Green and just using it to fit our narrative. Oh, he had a couple of bad outings because he was facing tough opponents. That's going to happen. Even when you're pitching in the National League Central, you're still going to face tough opponents, you know, to the point of a lot of people 
the divisional thing isn't really as much of a thing anymore. Uh, you're facing your divisional opponents, I think it's 52 times, as opposed to what it used to be, which is 76. It used to be half your games nearly were against your own division. And at that point, you can make kind of a legitimate case where, okay, even if he's in a bad ballpark, I'm not really going to mind it so much because he's going to be playing Pittsburgh four times. He's going to be pitching against the Cubs four times. The Cardinals are not great right now. Uh, the Brewers are, you know, kind of they're a good team, but I don't know how great they are offensively. If you look at this past season, they were outside of the top 20 in hits per game, in batting average, in slugging percentage, in homers. They weren't a great offense. You know, they got by because they have you know, kind of a few stellar pitchers, or they did at the top of their rotation. All that to say, I don't think that Hunter Green is really worth investing in in that kind of similar price range to what we're talking about with Musgrove, but about a round later. You're seeing him go about pick 123, 124. It's 123.5 right now on his ADP. Now, his minimum pick is wild to me at 64. The maximum is 169, and I think if that's the price you're paying, 169, that's not so bad, especially if you're in a position where, like, let's say you built your team and it's not really a strikeout-heavy type of pitching staff. You're building it more around those guys who are going to be, you know, the ground ball type of pitchers, the not massive K-rate type of guys, and you just need to fill in on strikeouts. You're more certain about your ratios at that point. Let's say you took George Kirby types or you took Zach Eflin types, you know, those type of pitchers. If you want to take a Hunter Green at that point and kind of balance that out and say, okay, I need a guy who's going to be able to give me probably 200 strikeouts at least if he pitches a whole season, which is another question with Hunter Green because he has missed a little bit of time uh, this season and a little bit last year as well, if I do recall correctly. So there's a lot of things that I just don't love about this situation. I don't love the price. I don't love the – I like the team context because it's getting better and better, but the ballpark context almost negates that team context to the point where – He's going to be giving up a homer or two every single start, pretty much. That's what he's averaged in his career. 46 career starts, 43 career homers allowed. I just don't know if there's a lot of security in that. Even though he is getting better, he's going to allow a lot of base runners, and you know there will be a lot of two, three-run homers for Hunter Green, and that's all it really takes to blow up your start, right? We've seen it You know, if you're an Aaron Nola owner from last year or a lot of different, uh, different examples – all you need is one, two, or three-run homer to really blow up your start. You can go five innings that are scoreless. You give up a three-run homer, and when you come out in the sixth inning, that kind of just negates your whole evening, and that's the kind of thing that can happen with Hunter Green. He might give you nine, ten strikeouts, but if he's consistently killing your ratios, which he was this season, a 482 ERA, I know the supporting metrics were better, but the actual reality is you, know, you can't look at XFIP with a guy like Hunter Green, even though it looks a lot better. It's 4 compared to 4.82. Last year, it was 3.64 compared to 4.44. You can't use league average homer to fly ball rate, which is what XFIP uses with a pitcher who pitches for the Reds. It just does not work because they're not going to allow an average number of homers to fly balls. They're going to allow a much higher number just because of the environment they're pitching in for half of their starts. It might break off a little differently. Obviously, it might be 17 starts at home. It might be 15 at home. Whatever it is, it's not going to look good for Hunter Green in a lot of those home starts. I'm definitely concerned about drafting him where he's going. 5.13 ERA at home, and you know, even on the road, it was 4.65. It wasn't like it was that much better. And the batting average allowed, the OBP allowed, they were both higher on the road. So I just really, there's a lot of different angles you can come at and come away concerned with drafting Hunter Green where he's going which at this point, I think it's a fairly high price to be paying in the 8th or the ninth round. Let's move on and let's talk about the next fade. Estiuri Ruiz. 
he was kind of a savior for a couple of my teams this year where I either took him very late, like 29th, 30th round kind of thing. He wasn't somebody that was maybe not, maybe a little bit earlier than that, 24, 25th round. He wasn't somebody that was getting pushed up at all. And he gave you 67 stolen bases. So there was definitely value there. There's a couple of concerns, though, right? Are you going to be able to repeat that kind of number? We have talked about it a lot on this show, how when you see those massive career-high seasons from anybody over the last decade, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, look at the season after that player puts up those monster numbers. And it doesn't have to be necessarily an MVP caliber campaign. It can just be an outlier in one regard or another. It might be 70 stolen bases. It might be 60 homers. It might be 150 runs scored. It might be a 350 batting average. You very rarely, if ever, see those numbers repeated. And you're not going to see that kind of number in any type of projection that you see for Ruiz, that you saw for Ronald Acuna, for all of these guys that you saw steal these massive number of bases. And to the the point there of like everything, you're going to see for Olsen, for Schwarber, for Alonzo, for all these guys that had the the home run leaders in the league, they're going to be projected for regression, and it's going to happen in most cases. It doesn't have to be necessarily severe, but when you're a one-category guy like Estiori Ruiz... And you're literally giving nothing else in any category. He had five home runs this year. He had 47 runs scored and 47 RBI. He batted 254. You want to say the 254 is not bad? It's not. It's not terrible. In today's major league climate, it's really not killing you at all. It's actually fine. But that's kind of it, right? You can't say it's a plus at 254. You can say it's neutral. The 67 stolen bases are obviously 100th percentile as good as it gets. But outside of that, you're still talking about a guy who's going to be playing for a terrible organization, a terrible team where there's going to be no help around him at all in terms of when he gets on base, actually bringing him home, in terms of you know from himself actually hitting those balls out of the park in that big ballpark where it's not going to do you any favors. He's a guy where there's actually a little bit more pop in the bat. We saw it in the minor leagues. He did go double-digit homers a couple different times. Are you going to be able to see that replicated in that big ballpark? Maybe he can get up to seven or eight. We see the projections right now. Steamer has him for nine. That's still not good, right? Nine home runs is still not anything to be writing home about. Now, this wouldn't be so bad if you're taking Ruiz like in the two something. Like if, if the price started with a two for him, then I would be pretty okay with it. But the price is 125. The minimum pick on Ruiz, I couldn't believe this. I had to double check it to make sure it was correct. His minimum pick is 47. Someone took him, I'm not sure if it was a 12-teamer, if it was a 15-teamer, but it was either the second-to-last pick of a 12-team fourth round, or if you're talking a 15-teamer, you're talking about the second pick of that fourth round. Absolutely egregious. Now, the maximum pick, that's where we're cooking, 224. I really hope the market adjusts so that Estuary Ruiz is somebody that you can get on a few teams and not have to feel so dirty about it. Yeah, he's going to help you out in that category, and he might actually propel you a little bit up in stolen bases if it's a roto league, if it's a head-to-head league, whatever. He might be a guy who is winning you that category, or he might be putting you up into, you know, maybe not winning necessarily by himself just because you need more stolen bases. You can't just take him and nobody else, but he might be giving you, you know, eight or 10 roto points in a 15 teamer just based on what he does. But then you have to look at the impact on the other categories, right? You're missing out on home runs. You're missing out on runs, RBIs. And, you know, based on what you're getting off the waiver wire, you're probably not missing out too much on batting average. But when you're missing out on three major categories there, it's really going to sting you. 
He's not going to be scoring a lot of runs. He's not going to be driving in a lot of runs. It's just you're hoping for that stolen base number to repeat. Now, the projections from Steamer right now have him coming down by 20 stolen bases. They think that 67 will turn into 47. And at that point, he is no longer any kind of value for you. You're getting that kind of number 47 stolen bases. It's still nice, but you're also getting a lot more stolen bases from everybody this season, right? 40 stolen bases is still very good, and it's not like it's a, like a common thing, but you got it from five players. If you're looking at 30 steals, you got that from 12 players. If you're looking at 20 steals, you got that from more than 30 players, right? 31 to be exact. So steals, you can get them. You don't have to look at a guy like Ruiz as you might have looked like 10 or 15 years ago at like a Scott Pedsednik, where his value would be crazy through the roof because there weren't, there were, you know, it was more of a stolen base environment, middle of the 2000s, but you weren't seeing a lot of guys go for those gaudy numbers. And overall, there weren't a hell of a lot of 20, 30, 40 stolen base guys that you could fill out your team with. But now you have those kind of guys who are giving you those kind of numbers, those 20 steals, those 17 steals, those 23 steals, and they're giving you production in other categories, whether it's a TJ Friedel, whether it's even potentially like an Anthony Volpe, Tyro Estrada. I'm just listing off guys who had 20 stolen bases last year that are, you know, I'm not talking about specific prices because they do vary, but those guys I just mentioned are going are going to be going later than Ruiz. They're going to give you more of a well-rounded profile. They might not give you as many stolen bases, but you can definitely make up for it. I don't think he'll be going for 70 steals. I think it'll probably be a lot closer to the projections, which are going to be 45 to 50 in a lot of cases. I'm somebody who right now is of the opinion that teams are going to do more to combat the stolen base this season. I'm not sure what it's going to be exactly, but I think there are going to be changes made after teams saw how they were taken advantage of last year, pretty much across the board in terms of just having guys getting into scoring position. And I don't think you're going to see that as much. The projections are going to be you know, factoring in a couple of years in their sampling. So they are going to be naturally not as high anyway because you know, Acuna, you know, he had 73 stolen bases. But if you look at the years prior, it's nowhere near that. So those are all going to be kind of factored in. The numbers are going to be lower based on that. But also I think maybe I'm not sure what goes into them 100% because the formulas aren't public exactly but I do think that you are going to see that factored in by, by some people, that we're not going to see it to the same necessarily, not to the same extent that we saw in 2023. So a guy um, who is stealing you so many bases like Ruiz is not necessarily going to be somebody that is even going to be fantasy relevant necessarily. Like he'll be drafted and he probably should be you know, rostered. But if you're talking a 12-team league, yeah, standard Yahoo kind of 12-team league where you got three outfielders, one utility, maybe two utility spots. I don't think you're really going to necessarily need him. You might be a team, especially in a head-to-head league, where it's like whatever, right? Do I need to use one of my roster spots and start one of these guys on a daily basis when I can get... Especially, if, like, let's say you take a Corbin Carroll or you take an Acuna early on. There is no need at all for a guy like Ruiz. If you really desperately need steals and you've taken a whole bunch of zeros, you've taken Corey Seager and Jordan Alvarez and you took Kyle Schwarber and you took a whole bunch of guys that are going to get you zero, I could see you being talked into it a little bit, but just beware, you're getting nothing besides those steals and those steals are probably not going to look exactly the same as they did a year ago. Let's move on and let's talk about Teoscar Hernandez, somebody who I used to absolutely adore when he was a member of my Blue Jays. He broke out as a Blue Jay. He won a couple of Silver Sluggers. He was an amazing fantasy player. But we've seen it kind of slow down the last couple of seasons. Now, on the surface, it still looks pretty okay. 26 homers. He had 93 ribbies. He batted 258. 
that's pretty all right. That's not bad at all. He really picked it up. Uh, I'm just pulling up the splits right now. He did pick it up. When was it? In the month of August was when he blew up and hit 365 with seven dingers, and that kind of saved the season. The other months of the year were kind of up and down. They were not bad. But that month really was what uh, saved him. It was the time when the Mariners, I believe, were just winning every game in sight. Julio was going off, and they were just really, really excelling. And he was a big part of that. As a whole, though, Teoscar Hernandez is not the guy that we saw a couple of years ago in Toronto. <clears throat> Excuse me. When he had 32 homers, he had 116 driven in, stole 12 bases, and he had 296 batting average. He was an absolute stud. For that year, and you know, even a couple of years prior in Toronto, he was really solid. 26 homers, 65 RBI, 22 homers, 57 ribbies. But we really saw amazing production from him in 2020, really, in the short year. That was when he kind of broke out, 16 homers in 50 games. But between that and 2021, Teoscar Hernandez looked like an absolute superstar. Now, these last couple of years, they've really not looked great. We've seen the strikeouts really go up. We've seen the power kind of go away, right? We saw in those... Big seasons, 32 homers and 25 homers over the last two years. I mean, 2022 wasn't a big season, but if you just look at the most recent couple sample sizes, and even if you go back farther and you look at what I mentioned, 26 homers and 22 homers, you're always talking about 130 or so games for Teoscar. This is what he has looked like over those previous four full seasons before 2023. 134, 125, 143, and 131. You're looking at an average of about 130 games, and you're looking at an average of about 25 to 30 home runs in that time frame. Now, this year he played 160, and he only had 26 homers. So it was coming more from a volume standpoint. If you're, got, if you're getting what you have been getting from Teoscar over the previous few years, where he has missed some time with injury, he has been a little bit banged up from time to time, you're probably not going to be getting those same kind of power numbers that you were hoping for and actually getting for a lot of years in Toronto. I think you're probably looking at this point as a, at a guy who is – I don't know. And first of all, he's a free agent, so I don't really know what the role is going to be. But I have to think he's going to be a guy who DHs a little bit more as he gets older, and he may not end up being a guy who is even necessarily 100% an everyday player. The defense is dreadful. I can tell you firsthand from watching in Toronto. If you don't believe me, just look at the defensive metrics wherever any site that has them. Uh, he is dreadful. He's awful. He's an eyesore to watch in the outfield, and the numbers say absolutely the same thing. I don't know that a team is going to give him a lot of money to play right field for them because I don't know that they want a liability playing right field for him for the next four or five years. I think he may just sign a one-year contract somewhere as a DH type. Maybe it's with a good team. I'm really not sure. But I think his role is kind of undefined right now, which is another thing that makes me kind of wary about drafting him where he's going, which is about 152 right now based on the early ADP numbers we're seeing. I just don't know that I want to take a chance on him. I know that outfield is pretty thin in a five outfielder league, and you get into round 10, and if a guy like that is still there and your eyes kind of pop up, okay, he gives me some steals, he gives me homers, he gives me decent you know, runs and RBIs, batting averages and bad. I just think that there's a lot better you could do at that point. You know, We talked about Brandon Nimmo the other day. You can get 40, 50 picks later. I don't know why you wouldn't take Brandon Nimmo over him at this point. You're getting a much safer profile overall. I know there's been some injury risk with Nimmo in the past, but the last two seasons have been healthy. I, I think that you got to take him 40, 50 picks later than Teoscar pretty much every time. The batting average has gone down. He's not somebody who you can really rely on as a stolen base asset. He might get you six or seven, but not really an asset like we might have thought he would have been after he had 12 in 2021. Didn't really take advantage of the new rules. He's always been, you know, going back to the same kind of point about the games played, a five or six stolen base guy in 120, 130 games. 
Now he had seven stolen bases in the 160 games. So you're not really going to be able to project that number to go up very much. In fact, you're going to probably project it to go down because I don't think the games played are going to necessarily be able to sustain Forte Oscar Hernandez. I think that he'll be somebody that's probably signed to a one-year contract as a DH type. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, and maybe I'll be completely wrong. Maybe he gets five years, $100 million, and somebody wants to stick him in right field for the next half a decade. I'm thinking that you know people are going to kind of realize what they're getting here. A 31% strikeout rate, which is reminiscent of his early days when he was still pretty good. But you're talking low 20s homers, probably expectations, 50, 60, maybe 70 runs in RBIs apiece. But you're talking that strikeout rate. It's really ugly. It was the fifth worst strikeout rate in all of baseball last season. You know, And it's not a great list to be on up there. It's not a terrible group of names, but Brent Rooker, Jack Sawinski, James Outman, and Ryan McMahon were the only guys who had worse strikeout rates than Teoscar Hernandez in his 31.1. All those guys above him are also guys that get on base a lot because they walk a lot. Rooker is 9% walk rate, Sawinski 14, Outman 12, McMahon 10.8, and then you got Teo at a 5.6% walk rate, which is well below with league average. So that 258 batting average is also a 305 OBP. So whatever your format is, I just don't know that Teoscar is going to be somebody that you can really rely on for that production that you've kind of been hoping for. I think the homers are going to fall off. I think everything is going to be kind of falling off, to be honest with you. And you're probably not going to get a guy who is returning even top 200 value. If you're getting him outside of the top 200, then I would probably take a chance because at that point it's like, okay, he's not terrible for batting average, right? He's still going to give you probably 250, 260, 20 ish homers, a couple of steals. Like you could do worse, especially in five outfielder leagues, but the minimum price on him is 86. The maximum is 194. At 194, by all means, at that point, I don't mind taking a shot on him. But a lot of the time, if you're just looking at the scatter plot here, and that's one of the good things about the NFBC site as well, it gives you kind of a scatter plot showing you where guys are being drafted in individual drafts. Uh, he's not going inside the top 100 a lot. Generally, you're looking like in the 140 to 160 kind of range. That's generally what we have seen here over the last month or so. It's just too pricey for me. I just wouldn't want to take a chance on him at this point. Let's talk about Merrill Kelly. Merrill Kelly is another guy that's on this list, and he's being uh, drafted literally one pick after Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, Teo's ADP is 151.9, and Merrill's next on the list at 152.6. Now, it's nothing really against Merrill Kelly. I just don't think that what he has done these last couple of seasons is really necessarily sustainable. He had a one-year spike in strikeout rate and swinging strike percentage, which I just don't know if it's going to hold up. The projections certainly don't think it's going to hold up. He went up to 25.9 on the K rate, which was the best we've ever seen from Merrill Kelly. And that's where a lot of the success, I think, was able to come from because he was also walking a hell of a lot of batters. 9.6%. It was the highest we've ever seen from him at any professional level. Now, when the strikeout rate goes up, sometimes the walk rate goes up as well. It's something that isn't uncommon. But I just... I don't know that we're going to be able to see, first of all, the strikeout rate sustain. And also, these ERAs that we've seen from him these last couple of years are probably going to make people want to be drafting him where he's going and even potentially pushing him up higher. 115 is his minimum pick. 205 is the maximum. But if you just look at the underlying numbers here, you know, 329 ERA this year, 337 last year. But you're looking on average, the XFIP is about a half a run higher. Same with the FIP. The XERA is about a half a run to a run higher. Now, the one that I like to look at really is Sierra and these last couple of seasons, 4.01 and 4.12. 
I just don't know that that's really what I want to be taking here as like based on this ADP, probably my fourth starting pitcher, maybe my third. Again, it really depends on your build. But I just, I just think there are safer picks if you want to go down the board a little bit farther. And I know that once you get to this point, you kind of want to be taking more sure things, right? Is Merrill Kelly a sure thing with his kind of profile of not a lot of strikeouts, a guy who's shown a massive spike in walk rate as well? There's a potential that walk rate stays up and that strikeout rate comes back down. And at that point, what are you looking at here? You might be looking at somebody that's not even startable. I, I think that that is a possibility. If you look farther down the board, you can get Jose Barrios, like a full round or two later. You can get Bailey Ober. You can get Carlos Rodon. These are guys that I've talked about as really liking. Uh, Hunter Brown as well, I think, is going to be really good. Braxton Garrett. There are a lot of nice pitchers going at the back end of the top 200 that I feel a lot safer about. And I think that's what a lot of this comes down to is if Kelly was going 50 or 70 picks later and I didn't have to use a pick in the first 10 or 11 rounds on him, then I would be more interested like, if he was going closer to that max of 205, then yeah. But he's not going to be because on the surface, and a lot of people will just look at the surface, he has been very good these last couple of seasons. You know, 337 and 329 ERA, those are great. But I think he's been overshooting his metrics. I think you're probably looking at a guy where, if you just look at the steamer projections at 4.18 uh, ERA, that's probably closer to what you're going to look at. So don't necessarily be expecting that low threes ERA again and thinking that you're sneaking an ace in the 11th round of your draft because you probably aren't. Okay, let's talk about one that was already on the list, but it became even more solidified once we got the news yesterday about Craig Kimbrell signing in Baltimore. That's Yanir Cano. Cano looked like he was going to have a chance to go into the year as the closer for Baltimore with Felix Batista missing the whole year. And people were jumping on that in these early drafts. 162 ADP, 93 on the minimum, 265 on the maximum. You got a feel for the person who took him at 93 because Craig Kimbrell signed. Craig Kimbrell got, I believe, I'm just going to double check. I think it was $13 million on the one-year deal. Uh, was it 13? I, be I believe it was $13 million. Regardless, uh, yeah, it was 13. They are going to make him the closer. Craig Kimbrell doesn't go anywhere unless he is the closer. We've seen that throughout his entire career. It's just the way it works, especially with this kind of money that he's getting. There's no way they're going to pay him that unless he is going to be closing. Now, Cano was already going to be on this list because once he had the closer role down the stretch, Batista, I forget exactly when it happened, about a month left in the season, I think. First of all, he was really not great the last month of the season, whether he was getting closer opportunities or not. We were looking at a 579 ERA from him. Now, obviously, with relief pitchers, it's always fairly small sample sizes, but he did seem to kind of deteriorate as the year went on. That strikeout rate that we saw that was pretty damn high uh, earlier in the year, it did fall down. The walk rate went down, or excuse me, the walk rate went up. Uh, everything was kind of getting worse if you went throughout the season. The whip in the first half was 0.89. In the second half, it was 1.17. Uh, if you look at those FIP, XFIP numbers, everything was worse in the second half of the year. Now with Kimbrell being in town, Cano is going to be turning into a guy where, like, if you are in a save and hold league, there will still be value there. He'll probably have a similar role to last season where, you know, he had 31 holds. He had eight saves. If you're in a save and hold league, that's gravy for you. But don't be drafting him in saves-only leagues thinking that you're getting a closer in the 10th or 11th round because at this point, you're getting a setup man, and maybe if Kimbrell falters, then he'll get a chance. And maybe he'll get the odd chance here or there, depending on usage, right? If Kimbrell has two saves in consecutive days, they need a guy on the third day, then good chance Cano is getting that opportunity. But I did hear people talking online about, oh, maybe it's going to be Cano still and Kimbrell's there as more depth, setup guy. It's not how it works. 
It's not how it's ever worked with Craig Kimbrell. They wouldn't be giving him this kind of money for him to come and sit on the bench uh, for, you know, and for just pitching the seventh inning randomly. And just, you know, I, I, mean, I know, I, weird thing to say, sit on the bench, because that's what relievers generally do. But they're not paying him to not come out there in the ninth inning. It's just not what's going to happen. So if you're drafting Cano, be very cautious. Like, there's no reason to draft him where he's going right now. He will start to fall, right? It just happened yesterday, the news, so we kind of have to give it a few days and see where a lot of these draft picks end up going because it does take a few days a lot of the time uh, for these ADPs to fully get uploaded. Sometimes there is a draft that takes place where there's a one-minute pick clock, and in that case, it's done in a couple hours. The, uh, the data will be on the site, I think, within a couple hours of that. But there are also a lot of slow drafts going on where the clock is like four hours, so there might be a draft going on right now where it's like in the 150s, 160s, and Cano will be pushed farther down in those drafts. We won't get that ADP data until those drafts are fully completed. So you might still look at it, and for the next couple of weeks, it'll still say, yeah, 160, 170, people are still drafting him high. It'll it'll definitely go down to the point where he's not even going to be somebody who is likely drafted in your standard. Uh, maybe in a 15-team draft he does. Maybe somebody takes him in the last round, second to last round, but... He is going to be absolutely plummeting. This is more just a warning shot for you guys right now. Again, these aren't going to be relevant. These videos come a few months from now. So if you're listening in February, you're thinking, Joe, Cano's not even getting drafted. He's in ADP of the 300, 400 kind of range. It's where we are right now. So just kind of a warning for you guys who are drafted. Maybe you, you likely saw the Kimbrell news, but everybody's also been so focused on Otani and on Soto obviously getting traded. So that might have taken up your attention. So just a warning there. Cano is not going to be somebody who returns any kind of value. He's already not a guy where if you just look at the profile, screams closer at you in the majors, 23% strikeout rate. You need guy who's going to be able to strike out you know, closer to 30, if not 30 or more percentage of batters as a closer. You're just not getting that from Yannir Cano regardless, and he's not going to have the role. So just be fading him. Uh, do not even look at him. Do not cue him up in your drafts. There's no point at all. Let's talk about one more player that I am fading in this range, and that is Shane Bieber. I hate to do it, but it's definitely necessary at this point. It's been necessary for the last couple of years, actually, and I have been fading him for the last couple of years, and he's been kind of outrunning me. Now, he's a curious case, Shane Bieber. In 2020, he absolutely broke out, and you could even argue it was 2019, where he, he had an amazing season. But in 2020, he won the Cy Young. We saw that strikeout rate pop up over 40%, which is like higher than Striders this year, just to give you context on that. He was absolutely dominant in 2020. In 77 innings pitched, he had 122 strikeouts. That was the peak. That was the peak for Shane Bieber, though. Because we've seen a bunch of injuries over the last several seasons. We've seen shoulder. I think there might have been something elbow as well. But I think the main concern was the shoulder. And there have just been a couple of times over the last several years where he has had to miss time. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was now. I thought I did have it in my head what uh, exactly the problem was. But um, it was definitely the shoulder. The shoulder was something that has bothered him. And yeah, there was the elbow this year, the shoulder in 2021. Um, so those are not anything you want to see even on their own, especially when you combine them. And maybe that's why we have seen Shane Bieber kind of fall off to some extent over these last couple of years. Now, he's still been productive. Somehow he has still been productive. I do not know how he's been able to do it. But with the declining strikeout rate, which has declined drastically, uh, you know, I mentioned 41.1% in 2020. In 2021, over a full season, um, well, actually, it wasn't the full season. You missed time. It was 16 games. But it came down to a more reasonable number at 33%. And you're thinking, okay, if it's 33%, 
then that'll probably work. But then it came down precipitously again in 2022 to 25%. And now this year, we're looking at only 20.1% strikeout rate from Shane Bieber. He has cut it in half from that 41%. I know we were thinking it was going to come down. Obviously, no one really sustains 40, 41% strikeout rates. It just doesn't happen. Especially, I mean, if you're a reliever, it can happen. But as a starting pitcher, it's nearly impossible. Even for Strider, that's going to be impossible. But, man, it has just fallen off to the point where Shane Bieber is almost a liability in the strikeout category. 128 innings pitched and 107 strikeouts this year. Now, the actual results, 380 ERA, 288 last year, 317 the year prior. They've been very good. And again, I don't know how he's been able to do it considering he's lost velocity. He's pretty much losing velocity every single season. That 2020 year is 94 was his average fastball velocity, which already isn't crazy fast. But considering he had a bunch of pitches, he can, you know, you can get away with not throwing as hard. But he went from 94 to 92.8 down to 91.3, and that's where he sat the last couple of years. Now, it didn't really drop off again this season, the velocity, but over the past couple of years, it has. So if that velocity potentially, I don't know how stable that is. It could fall another tick, and he might be throwing 90. You know, We used to joke on this show a couple of different places. Actually, I've heard it talked about that he was fancy Zach Grinky at this point, expensive Zach Grinky. And that's not too far off from what you're getting. A soft-throwing guy who's you know got pretty solid control. You're looking at a 4.6% walk rate last year, 64 this year. But you're not getting any velo. You're getting no strikeouts. And you're kind of hoping that he's able to skate by while overshooting those advanced numbers as well. Because if you just look at what those Sierras have been telling you, they've gone from 252 to 321 to 321 again, which is kind of rare to see the exact same number in two years. But this year, it was 429 with a 396 XFIP, which is by far the worst numbers we've ever seen from Shane Bieber. Now, the price is not as high as it has been. It's 167 on average. But I just think still at that point, you know, we've listed off a few names who are going in that kind of range. Barrios in the exact same range, I think, is a lot more stable. Bailey Ober, I think, as well. Carlos Rodon is obviously a bit of a risk, but we went through him on the ADP value show the other day. Obviously, I'm a huge Carlos Rodon guy. You guys know this by now. But even those guys I mentioned earlier, Hunter Brown, Braxton Garrett, Nick Pavetta, uh, if you keep going farther down, even into the 200s, there's probably, you know, even the Savalis of the world. You can take a chance on Brandon Fott. Uh, there's still names that are probably going to be more enticing to me than Shane Bieber, especially considering that price. I mean, it's come down, but not come down nearly as much as it should have. His minimum pick is one of the more wild ones I've seen at 59. 245 is the maximum. And hell yeah, if you're taking him at 245, then I don't have any problem with it. But he's been uh, taken in the top 100 in a lot of drafts. You know, if you're, And most of them were like October drafts, more in the month of November. We've seen him skate down a little bit, and that's skewed it ever so slightly. He's more going now in like the 150 to... Closer to 200 range, there's not so many of those top 100 picks anymore, but it's still egregiously too high. I wouldn't want to take him anywhere in the top 200. He's not pitching for a good team, so I don't know how many win opportunities you're necessarily going to see from him. He won six games in 21 starts this year, even with that decent 380 ERA. I I just don't know what you're really getting out of him. You're not getting strikeouts. You're not getting wins. You're just kind of praying that he's able to outrun those indicators for another season and I wouldn't really want to be betting on that for Shane Bieber. So just to recap here, yeah, the seven names, Joe Musgrove at 108, Hunter Green at 123, Estiri Ruiz at 126, Teoscar Hernandez at 152, Merrill Kelly also at 152, Yanir Cano at 162, and then Shane Bieber at 167. Those are the seven guys that I am fading right now. 
between picks 100 and 200. Again, if you're listening to this later on in the offseason, things might have changed, but I don't think they're going to change drastically. I think you're roughly looking at the range where a lot of guys are going to be going. Again, there will be changes, obviously. I'm not going to say that every single player is going to be the same, but these are generally speaking, I think, where guys are going to go. So just remember, um, I mean, this is just my opinion, but these are the guys that I'm going to be looking out for, I think, for a lot of different reasons that we laid out today. So Make sure you guys are checking us out over on social media, specifically Twitter, at JoeOrico99, also at EthosFantasyBB, and SportsEthos.com, the website, of course. Guys, we will be back tomorrow. <clears throat> but until then, take care, have a great night, and cheers. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.